Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm also doing very well. I'm excited about our topic this week. It, it takes me back all the way to the beginning. It does. So it, uh, very appropriately for episode 150. Uh-huh. It, 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 just to uh, us humans love round numbers, as I pointed out this week. And, yes. uh, and to that point, we are, get to talk about the topic and point that, uh, that, that inspired this podcast in the first place. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. First, though, we have to thank WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent. We're excited to have WordPress.com as a sponsor. Whether you'd like to build a personal blog, a business site, or both, creating a website at WordPress.com helps others find you, remember you, and connect with you. You don't need experience. They guide you through the process from start to finish and take care of the technical side to get your site up and running. Their customer support team is made up of WordPress experts eager to help you get the most from your site, and they're available to help 24 hours a day, Monday through Friday, and weekends. Plans start at just $4 per month, and all plans include a custom domain name for the life of the plan. So go to WordPress.com slash Exponent to get 15% off your website today. That's WordPress.com slash Exponent. I thought for oh, for wow. did you? Uh, I thought for our for the episode it, and my gratitude to you for doing this podcast with me. I was gonna not ask you anything at all. Uh, <laughs> I was sitting on the edge of my seat, and, and also, like, what's it gonna be? What's it gonna be? And also, it also sort of in, it, you know, well, still inspiring terror in you uh, as I got closer and closer to the finish line. I know you don't have to do anything now when I start sweating. This is terrible. <laughs> I, I I do I do what I can. Uh, <laughs> uh, indeed. So yes, we, I think we've we've definitely talked about this on the podcast before. Uh, mm. I believe the the first time we met in person was in a coffee shop in Palo Alto, and and you were determined to take me to task for for writing uh, about why Professor Christensen was wrong. And and I, I think instead of I, I, something of the lines of let's instead of debating this here, let's let's debate it on, on a podcast instead. And that was the the origin story of Exponent. Have we have we told the Genesis story how like we met on Twitter talking about this and then it ended up in a in Palo Alto and then it was walking out of out of lunch or the coffee shop. And it's like there's no good podcast in this space. We came up with the name and then the next week we were recording it. It was as it was as quick as that. Uh, I think your details, yeah, I think your details are a little off, mm-hmm. but but in broad stroke, in broad strokes, you're right. Uh, we, we we met pro- we met earlier than that, probably like six months prior uh, on Twitter, and then I wrote this, and you were very disgruntled, and then we met in person, and we agreed to start a podcast, but we didn't actually start recording until about six months later. So oh, really, but, but you know, it's okay. We are getting old, and and you know, details details start to disappear. Details, I, I know. Like focus on the story, right? It's the narrative arc, not the details that count. Yeah, you're right. Because stories matter. Us humans, we're attached to stories. So mm. uh, as I'm, you know, baking in what we're what we're going to talk about here. Well, let's go back. Might as well go back back to then. At the time that I wrote this article, and when I this was when I first started Architecture in 2013, and a huge topic, a huge topic at the time in sort of the the tech press generally and punditry and and Wall Street analysis was that Apple had to make a, a lower price phone. Like, and it, people were banging the drum, and and there was rumors about Apple's going to finally come out with a new phone. It has to be it's going to be a cheap phone. They have to do that to compete, et cetera, et cetera. And then Apple comes out and they and the new phone, the iPhone 5C, basically is just a drop in replacement for the iPhone 5. It's a hundred dollars cheaper than the than the new flagship model, as the iPhone 5 would have been had they not discontinued it. And it was definitely not. Not a a low price iPhone, and and people kind of lost their minds. Yeah, I mean, it was. This was also cast your mind back to this was Samsung coming out with uh, a 
a big phones at the time and uh, the, the rise of Android. And it looked to many, and I will put myself in this bucket, it looked to many like this was going to be a repeat of the Mac versus Wintel Wars where you had a modular system come along and take over from the integrated one. Oh, James, James, you are getting old. See, details, details, details matter. I mean, I, I know you know this, but, you know, that, that sort of story of Mac versus Wintel, I, I, it, it's, it's kind of like the seed of so much bad analysis and technology mm. because mm-hmm. the reality is, and I, I think we might have just talked about this a couple, a couple weeks ago, is the Windows was a, a, a feature that went on top of DOS. And, and DOS was the foundation of, mm-hmm. of Windows sort of dominance. And that came out in 1981, the, the, IBM, the IBM PC, a full three years before the Mac was ever on the scene. And it built up a whole ecosystem, developers, apps, you know, businesses buying it. And and, and so the, the Mac, it's much more realistic to say that the Mac actually never had a chance because DOS was already dominant. And then Windows just added a GUI on top. And yes, it was messy and nasty and, and not nearly as elegant as the Mac. But but it, it was going on top of an ecosystem that already existed. And, and you know, if anything, it was because the Mac was closed that it even survived, you know, to the extent that it did. I mean, in the 90s, it was when the Mac actually opened up that, that it almost killed the company. That's why Apple almost went, almost went bankrupt. And, and, you know, again, I, I know we've talked about this and, and mm. you know this, but it, it's a point worth keeping in mind when it comes to when, when it comes to analysis, because. I think you're right. That story is the sort of most widely accepted explanation for what happened to the Mac, and it drove a lot of the bad analysis around the iPhone, particularly in 2013. Yeah, I mean, the the story of the PC wars, which to date had been, I mean, it was the equivalent back then of what the phone wars were now. This was the market that everybody paid attention to. This is where tech companies rose or fell. And those were the lessons that were learned. And I think there is a lesson in of that itself, which is you must understand the context deeply, lest you draw the wrong lessons, lest your ability to understand what's happening right now is wrong. And that that was one of the takeaways for me. Oh, absolutely. It's it, it's such a great point. So that whole 5C debate was the sort of background for when I wrote this piece and this piece about what Clay Christian got wrong. And my point in, in this piece was, as we've sort of discussed, that when you're in the consumer market or in, to more broadly, a market where the buyer is the user, that mm. things like the user experience matter in a much more significant way than they do in, in B2B markets where the buyer and the user are, are separate. And mm-hmm. furthermore, those things that matter to the buyer slash consumer are things that are exceptionally hard to sort of measure and put on a spreadsheet and do a sort of like, oh, this phone is now, quote unquote, good enough. And therefore, consumers will start looking at other aspects like price is usually the the go-to one. Price is definitely one of them. But I think uh, you make the point very well that there's there's something else, which is you don't have the benefits of a full IT department backing you up when you're not inside a B2B or a big enterprise, which is traditionally where tech was, particularly in the 80s and the 90s. If you had an IT department, they were responsible for integrating it. If something went wrong, you had them to call up and fix it. If you're a consumer, you're 
kind of out on your own. And this is one of the things that that, uh, the difference between the B2B and the B2C buyer is like you just want it to work. You want it to be easy. You want it to be functional. You do not want to have to come home and play systems integrator because most people, there, there are probably a bunch of people in our audience that enjoy doing that, but most regular people out there do not want a part of it. That's exactly right. And I would say there, there were two further points from that article. Uh, one is that, you know, it, integration provides a more seamless and better experience than modularity. It, it's sort of like inherent in it because it's a question of priority, right? Of course, in a modular system, you want it to be easy to use, but you, your priority ultimately is that there be sort of standardized interfaces and understood ways that the different pieces interact and that like and and the user experience might be priority number two whereas if it's a fully integrated solution the user experience can be the top priority because there isn't that sort of intervening priority in the middle and and, and like priorities matter it matters what is what what is number one and what is number two and and i think it effectively means that the system integration is done before the device or whatever it is arrives in the hands of the user and there are you're able to trust because it's all in-house there's a degree of trust that's not present when you have to pull the pieces together and the user has to establish the trust and the user has to pull all the pieces together and by its very nature that the distinction between those two different environments ends up with a very different user experience well not just and you can see it in android now I mean, what is the best android phone i think by a significant margin at least the, the ones that i've used it's it's the pixel phones from google and and you know it makes sense like they are controlling every aspect of the process Mm. and i still think it's not as good as an iphone in part because android it's very sort of foundational level is 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 a much more sort of modular sort of mm-hmm. approach and it's it's designed to work everywhere and it has you know various decisions that were made early on to allow it be more easily cross-platform and, and all sorts mm-hmm. of things but 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 even then even there with those limitations when google does it all it's 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 better it's it's better to use it, it doesn't surprise me either it, the the other point that I would make on this, I think, is the, the other error that I think was made in the this analysis of integration modularity in the context of the phone was thinking that the only point possible point of integration is the operating system and the hardware. And, and again, I think this was a lesson that was mislearned from the Microsoft sort of experience. Like, oh yeah, there it's separate, right? The hardware and the operating mm. system are separate. But but you can have integration at any point in the value chain. The value chain, that, like, that doesn't have to be the point of integration. And I've made this point before that Apple, Apple, yes, they integrate the operating system and the hardware, but they're highly modular when it comes to, say, the component side. And they're highly modular when it comes to the app side, right? They, they, they create a platform that... It, all sorts of apps can plug into what is an API, but sort of a modular standardized interface that that things can sit on top of. And the same thing on the on the on the, on the bottom side. And Samsung is much more integrated on like the component side, for example, than Apple is. And Google is arguably much more integrated on the application side than Apple is. Right, all the Google stuff that's built into Android at a very deep level, at a far deeper level than Apple services are built in, in, into iOS. And you know, the point is. To restrict yourself to such a narrow definition of integration is, is again, I think, a, a mistake that was made in trying to take PC analysis and apply it to the phone market. I agree. And you think about Google and it's, a, it's a, uh, 
its efforts with its phone, you you want to integrate where you're going to have an advantage. And integrating between the operating system and the services makes perfect sense for Android. What's been interesting to see is, I know you mentioned that Apple is quite modular in terms of its components, and that's true. But seeing where they have made strategic decisions to integrate down into hardware around, for example, the creation of their own processor, which is a very different uh, outcome from the the PC wars. They now have a processor, which is a strategic advantage, and they will make investments in manufacturing and utility and specific components where they think they will get an edge. So this idea that it's only operating system to hardware, you're right, it's, it's very different. And uh, understanding that is critical to understanding, to making sure we don't, I don't, we don't make those same mistakes that were made looking at the PC era as well. It's a, it's a great point. I mean, ar- arguably the most important integration in Apple device is not the phone and the operating system. It's the operating system and the processor, right? They're like they've, mm. they've narrowed the point of integration. And, and again, the, the phone is it, it, like it, it's a contract manufacturer that's getting sup- components that are, you know, delivered on a Apple is always seeking to, to have multiple suppliers in diversifying their the supplier base, et cetera, et cetera. And, and yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a real, it's a really good point. So, uh, after, anyhow, after, uh, <laughs> after, uh, hyping up all the stuff I got right in this article, what, what struck me over the last sort of week and a half, and we'll get to the context of, of, of how I, how I got struck, as it were, was mm. I think there was one important thing I got wrong in this article. And it's, it wasn't wrong per se. I just, I wasn't thinking about it quite right. And that is, I put something in this article about how the user experience can never be good enough. But, and maybe this didn't come with the article, but I just know how I, I was thinking about it. I mm. sort of had this picture in my head of this sort of idealized user experience and just the nature of creating mass products and software and bugs and all these sorts of things is that you could get a better and better user experience where you'd like never achieve perfection. And, and, and you know, that would be a great thing. But sort of inherent in that, there was a sort of inherent assumption of, of, finiteness if that makes sense right like Mm -hmm. yeah apple could get ever closer ever closer but that still left open the possibility of sort of good enough because if if apple's horizon of improvement was capped then even if android was always sort of inferior it could get closer and closer and closer and and i think what i realized this week is is even that was perhaps not giving enough credit to my point which is that you know the user experience is a sustainable sort of differentiator in, in the face of of disruption particularly low end disruption this is a fascinating point and when i i read your article and i want to come back to a couple of things in it that i really appreciated too but we'll touch on them later on when i read your article and i saw the way that you illustrated uh user experience the uh, perfect user experience and possible user experience as asymptotically possible user experience was kind of converging on perfect user experience. And then the second version of it that you drew out, which was this perfect user experience and possible user experience in parallel, which it the two things never met and they kind of increased at the same slope. I was like, that makes a lot of sense. The thing that I think is still really, really important to disaggregate when you're having this conversation is, 
in the original in the original way that Christensen conceptualized disruption, it was performance over time, and obviously cost was a factor as well. Uh, and depending on the chart that you you drew, and I think there is this element in which user experience and performance are highly related, but they're not the same thing. And that's the thing where I still think there's a possibility that even creating the perfect user experience for a product category, you can still leave yourself disrupted because performance, the ability for a consumer, obviously a business, but for a consumer to absorb all the performance is still limited at some level. And if you overshoot the, if you overshoot that, that's when you still leave yourself open to disruption. So let's back up and and sort of define this. And and I am going to attempt to describe a graph on a podcast, which is probably not the ideal medium, but Mm. but bear with me. (laughs) So there, there is this sort of famous graph from, from Christensen's books, which is this, uh, it shows sort of the th- there's a slope that goes up, which is relatively steep, which is sort of the improvement and performance of the incumbent sort of integrated product, right? And there is mm. another slope, which is the user sort of expectations for that product and what they want the product to do. And when it starts out, what the users want the product to do is is higher than the sort of performance of the product. And the idea is an integrated product can improve more quickly because the the, the main uh, the, the company making it controls all the aspects of it so they can get things to work together better and faster. And, and it improves rapidly, improves more rapidly than sort of the consumer expectations for the product do. And eventually they intersect mm. and you kind of have like a home run. You have, mm. so you have an initial phone that maybe is a little slow, a little sluggish, but has real promise. And then the integrated company mm-hmm. can improve it very quickly. And then it meets user expectations and, and you have a, you have a home run like like the iPhone and i think that was the sort of the you know in this sort of folks that thought the iPhone would disrupt it no one thought the iPhone was a bad product they thought it was an amazing product it, it just was it had reached that sort of point and that's why it was so successful where it met users expectations the problem though is in this graph the sort of it, the rate of improvement of the product continues to be steep but the user sort of expectations for the product continues to be more flat, less steep, as it were. And, mm-hmm. and what happens is this is the what's referred to as overshooting is the products just keeps getting better and better and better. But it's getting better in ways that aren't really important to the user because it's already doing what they need it to do. And, mm. and, and, and this is where it overshoots. And the implication of that is, is a second competitor can come along and, and it, it can have worse performance because it's like modular and it's using different pieces and modularity has the advantage advantage of having uh, competition in the supply chain where they're competing to, to drive down prices and have better performance. And it starts out, it's worse because a modular solution is harder to build. But over time, because user expectations are relatively shallow in their slope of increase, as long as it has the same rate of increase as sort of integrated provider, the integrated provider will overshoot. And because they don't have the advantage of, of cost competition and price, they'll be more expensive, have too many features, become overly complicated, and will end up being that the cheaper modular solution will be good enough to meet users' needs. And, and then the the incumbent player is disrupted because they they have a solution that's too expensive. They pursue higher and higher end customers because and dr- raise the prices to justify it. And mm. meanwhile, the, the low end comes in and sort of eats the mass market. I think for what you just did, a a verbal description of a graphical uh, uh, graphical entity, I think you did a pretty good job. Well, thank you. We will put a link to the graph in, in the mm. show notes if you want to take a look at it. I think you just made the key point, though, is the problem with this graph is I think the it, it's 
its definition of performance is is too narrow or that or that mm. performance is different than sort of the user experience. And you know, I I always have this debate every time I write about the user experience. People are like, oh, I think that you I think that UI stinks. I'm not talking about the user interface. The user interface is an aspect of the experience. Mm. Mm-hmm. Going, being able to go to a store and try it out is an aspect of the experience. Being able to order anything online is an aspect of the experience. Two day delivery aspect of the experience. Being able to return something, be able to have you know customer support. All every, the entire experience of owning a product, the status that comes from owning a brand name phone is part mm. of the experience. Like the user experience is the totality of the product. It's not. It's not just the performance of, of components. It's not just the sort of like user interface. It's the entire it's everything about the product and that aspect when you think about the totality particularly in the consumer market where the buyer is a user and their needs and desires and expectations are are so much vaster than a sort of someone buying based on a pros and cons list on a spreadsheet mm. in that area i think that slope about user expectations is wrong it's just wrong because people so easily become accustomed to what 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 what, is, what used to be fresh and novel, right? It's that Louis C.K. Skit, skit about you know flying in the sky and complain, you know, being in an airplane, complaining about Wi-Fi, right? <laughs> like you're 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 flying and you're complaining that the Wi-Fi isn't mm. good enough, right? But that's exactly how humans work. I absolutely one hundred percent agree with you. I think the intellectual journey that I've gone on with you as a result of this is actually causing me to question whether. I mean, we. I made the admission that I had a. I predicted I was worried about Apple from an iPhone perspective because of low end disruption, and I actually. And I don't want to speak for Professor Christensen, but it's caused me to question whether low end disruption isn't one of these things that was highly predicated inside the lessons from the PC wars, and the lessons were perhaps wrong. And I'm not. This is just a question that I've had because, in terms of low end disruption, the dynamics that you're describing, where you cannot overshoot on the user experience, are absolutely correct. But I don't think this is a dis like focusing on the user experience itself. I don't think is an antidote to disruption. So I th- I think about taking this idea and planting it down into. Uh, another market and uh, automotive and transportation is one of these things that I always uh, like is is one of my favorite ones and I think about how the automotive manufacturers are improving the user experience on a consistent basis like cars are getting the, the quality of a car the experience of owning a car the brand of things like Porsche or BMW or Tesla continues to grow year over year and the technology is growing more and more sophisticated that experience of what that is like continues to improve. I don't think that is going to help them. In fact, I think it is going to continue to drive them straight up the mountain and then over the cliff when it comes to the new market disruption that is represented by something like ride sharing. I completely agree. And, and I just realized I didn't make that distinction clear enough in the post I wrote this week, but I did. Mm. I did back in the what, what, what Clayton Christian got wrong piece. In that piece, I delineated between 
the two types of disruption, right? Low end disruption versus new market disruption. Mm. And and my point was, I think new market disruption is an is is a, an amazing insight. I think one hundred percent applies. I completely believe in it. Mm. But I think low end disruption is bullshit. <laughs> and like that, so we're on we're totally on the same page. And and I think your the car market and it's always used in the context of phones, but for really good reason. It is a perfect example where where you can sustain a high end business for decades, right? Like people like nice things. They, they, they like buying nice things. And there's so many consumer markets where people buy things that are more expensive, that are functionally are mm-hmm. identical to a cheaper product, but they just like nice things. And that that this wouldn't apply to phones, I, I think to your point, was a, was a mistaken lesson that came from the PC market. The difference mm-hmm. between the PC market and the phone market is that the PC market, particularly in the 80s, where all these lessons were drawn from, was an enterprise market. It was enterprise buyers buying PCs, mm-hmm. and what mattered was all this ecosystem components. And, and later on, the, the phone market was a consumer market, number one, and number two, Unlike the PC market, Apple really was first, which meant they had the whole ecosystem. They had all the pieces. And so they weren't actually comparable at all. So we're actually now, I think, completely on the same page. Mm, I think so, too. And this notion, I think you said something really important in in that last statement, which is where they're functionally identical, people will pay more for a better experience. And I think the issue comes when the the functionality is surpassed or when the functionality per dollar starts to improve in a new market product. So again, I I think that it's it's fine if you buy a more expensive bag or you buy a more expensive phone and the experience is better. But when something else comes along that is disruptive, for for example, ride sharing and ride sharing is going to continue to improve uh, for all the reasons we've talked about on this podcast. I think they it is going to be the thing that brings uh, self-driving vehicles to the masses. And then you start to see it play out similar to the airline market where there are different cabins of transportation and it becomes a, a, a very nice experience. Probably not quite as nice still as owning your own car in terms of uh, maybe some of the, the, the touch and feel perhaps or the, the brand experience. But when the, the performance of the self-driving, the ability of it just to show up, to let you do what you want in the back, to deliver you and to not have to worry about parking to allow you perhaps to sleep in the back of the car, all these things. And when there are people that are paying more for lower function, that's when it doesn't, the experience doesn't work anymore. That's when you, you've got to, you've got to stay in the ballpark in terms of the functionality. If you drop off your ability to keep improving on the user experience, that's when you've overshot and you're really in trouble. I, I completely agree. And this is, and this is why I've also said that I think if you restrain your definition of disruption to being new market disruption, this mm. gets at my contention that there's actually nothing an incumbent company can do about disruption. Because mm. the, the problem is that it, it, it's it's challenging what they do with a completely new business model that is fundamentally at odds with with, with their market, right? If we actually switch tomorrow, just as, as a thought exercise, if we mm. switch tomorrow to, to all self-driving cars, that mm-hmm. and it was a whole network and and maybe be stratified by price. The end of the day, a Mercedes or a BMW is at best a high end provider of like the luxury tier of self driving cars, right? Mm-hmm. And and no matter how much they they can still have a business there, but it's not not going to be nearly as good of a business as they have today. And there's nothing they can do about it. They can't change it. There's no like setting up a clandestine like 
side team to build a disruptive product because the disruptive product destroys your company. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're totally on the same page. I mean, it's, I, I think this is going to be fascinating to watch the automotive market play out for the reasons you just talked about, because some of the automotive manufacturers are trying to do these, these side gigs. GM, for example, has invested a lot of money into some of the self-driving technologies and thinking about what this future will be like. But you think about a company like Mercedes and they have an entire experience set up around the brand and the experience that, that you described of like what it's like to walk into a showroom and and what it's like to to feel the clonk of the car door when it shuts and it's in your garage and how that makes you feel and if you're still buying into that even though the underlying I mean they've built it all around that and people buy into that experience but if the performance of what that represents disappears their ability to maintain their margins and deliver on that experience it's it's the emperor has no clothes people will look at someone who thinks they're fantastic for driving around in a mercedes why are you doing that and their ability to take their entire organization from the dealers to the way it's built to the 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 way it drives because it's self-driving to take that and to turn the ship in or to midstream in order to deliver a great self-driving experience, I think that's going to be a real struggle for these manufacturers. But there are some that are trying, and I think it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. Right. But a company like GM is going to be fine in this new world because their whole business is creating low and low margin cars. I mean, like they at scale, like a huge portion of like GM and Ford sales go to like rental fleets, for example, which Mm. is basically the same business from Mm -hmm. a manufacturer perspective. So I think the, the, the broader point, and this is maybe where the high end low-end disruption is interesting is that new market disruption is much more problematic for a high-end player because their reason for being high-end goes away. Whereas whereas if you're a low-end you know business that's predicated on keeping costs down, like th- that is in some respects a more sort of like defensible model. Like like disruption happens to high margin mm. differentiated products when their point of differentiation becomes irrelevant. Yeah, I I agree. I I question though, I guess whether GM is as low end, low low uh, low cost as your. I mean, relative to Mercedes, absolutely. Uh, relative to if we think about the media industry, the difference between taking a newspaper and throwing everything off the side of the ship that you no longer need versus someone who comes along and builds out exactly what you need from scratch with nothing else, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out because I'm not convinced it's going to be as easy for these auto manufacturers to jettison all the parts of the experience that they've built up as you might think. I agree, but I, I always guess it's all relative, right? Like uh-huh. GM is in better shape relative to relative to Mercedes, for example. Honestly, if anything, given that the in the U.S. anyway, manufacturers aren't allowed to own their own dealerships, uh, actually, that that may that may end up protecting the mm. the manufacturers in some respects, whereas the the dealer the dealer owners will have to take it on the chin. But it, we, we are we are getting we are getting a, a a bit of field. I I do think though this is an interesting place to transition to Amazon, particularly when we're talking about about low margins. And mm. as I mentioned in the article, what sort of prompted my my sort of realization on this point specifically was Jeff Bezos' annual 
Oh, it's Jeff Bezos, isn't it? I pronounce it wrong all the time, and I always get. Well, I do too. <laughs> it's about his uh, his annual shareholder letter, which, as always, emphasized that for Amazon, focusing on the consumer first is is their north star, their guiding light, et cetera, et cetera. And and but he had a line in this that really stuck out to me, and I'm going to quote it directly. One thing I love about customers is that they are divinely discontent. Their expectations are never static; they go up. It's human nature. We didn't ascend from our hunter-gatherer days by being satisfied. People have a voracious appetite for a better way, and yesterday's wow quickly becomes today's ordinary. And and that's kind of the like that that I I mean I that's I quoted the article because I that's exactly it. That's why I use divinely discontent in the title. It's the exact sort of phenomena I'm referring to about you know customers are something's two day shipping right. You get Prime, wow, the package shows up in two days right. With it, how long until you're annoyed that the package showed up at eight p.m. instead of showing up at four p.m. right? Or you know maybe you get a one day shipping. Wow, that's amazing. I got it one day. Next package comes in two days. Oh, that sucks. Why my Last week, mm-hmm. one day, why did it come in two days, right? Again, it's it's the humans on the airplane complaining about Wi-Fi phenomena. Uh, you're basically describing my Amazon shopping experience right now. <laughs> if something ships, I'm, I, I'm, I, something was meant to arrive uh, on a Monday. I ordered it on a Saturday and I just assumed it was two days and I found myself getting increasingly annoyed. And then I realized the merchant wasn't doing the regular prime and had shipped it nine days and I was I was ready to cancel the order. Amazon now has global prime, which is amazing. Oh, wow. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, you, you, you have to pay for shipping and you have to pay for the import tax and all that stuff, but it's so seamless. You do it. They take care of it. And then a week later, you'll get like a, a refund of like whatever the difference was. And, and, uh, and they always say it'll take like seven to 10 days, but it usually shows up in like five or six. And, and mm. I, I had a package the other day. I'm like, it was like day nine. I'm like, what's going on? Like, I can't believe this, this, this stinks. It's terrible. <laughs> it's like, wait, I am, I am ordering like cords on Amazon because if you think about the time to, and the hassle of trying to find some obscure cord in like mm. a, a Taiwanese electronic mart or whatever, like ordering, having Amazon is incredible. And yeah, it took me about three orders to, to quickly get over the amazement. Before we continue down this path, I there is something else in this article that I really feel is worth calling out. And before I, I got in and realized it was going to be a disruption thing that maybe we were going to have a little bit of a tangle on, but we sorted out. The start of your article, was so fantastic in the way that you drew the distinction between Apple and Amazon. Uh, the uh, the Apple brags about focus. Amazon calls itself the everything store. Apple's a product company that struggles at services. Amazon is a services company that struggles at product. Apple has the highest margins and profits in the world. Amazon brags that others' margins is their opportunity and until recently barely registered any profits at all. And underlying all of this, Apple is an extreme example of a functional organization and Amazon an extreme example of a divisional one. And the reason I wanted to read this is because it is so easy as a student of business to slip into this belief that there is one right way to do things. And it is such it's so awesome that these are two incredibly performing, beloved companies that do things at completely opposite ends of the spectrum. And your point that getting organizations in alignment around all this stuff is actually what matters. It matters. I mean, understand the environment you're competing in, where your strategic advantage is and what type of organization or what type of business model you need, and then align around that as opposed to have a holy belief that one is better than another. I just wanted to call that out because I thought it was phenomenal. 
Well, thank you. And I think the, the counterexample is, was Microsoft, right? When it, To go back to 2013 and early Stratechery articles, the reason why I was so aghast at the 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 Balmer reorganization mm. to be a pseudo sort of functional organization was it completely misunderstood the sort of company that Microsoft was and mm-hmm. and you saw this with Windows Phone too which Microsoft was like we're going to compete on the user experience to make a consumer focused phone and, and meanwhile by the time they retired it it still didn't have important enterprise features that the iPhone had added years ago. I mean, imagine imagine being Microsoft and entering the smartphone market and not competing by being the best enterprise phone. It's madness. It's absolute madness. But it, the, 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 the fundamental failing of, of C. Ballmer, and there were a whole host of them. I mean, first and foremost, Microsoft was disrupted. And there's no shame in that. Like, there's there's a lot of things that would have happened to Microsoft no matter who was in charge. It didn't matter. And hmm. and, and But but the, the fundamental failing that he had as a CEO was not understanding and appreciating the nature of the company and making mm. decisions accordingly because you can you can change you can change strategy you can even change culture we talked about this a little, little bit ago i fundamentally do not believe you can change nature and and that is what he tried to do and it was just foolhardy it was it felt like in retrospect and this is back before i think i'd fully internalized this I, again this journey i've been on i've come to the realization that there isn't this one right answer. It just depends. It depends is actually the right answer in so many instances. And I remember when Balmer did this and I was like, you know, Apple was right all along. This is the right approach. And now in retrospect, it is the business strategy equivalent of copying someone else's homework and it won't work. Yeah, I, I, th- th- that's, that's exactly right. It's a great way to put it. And, and, you know, the killer example of, you know, we spend so much time talking about Apple and services, right? The, the bizarro Apple and services is Amazon and products and, and the Fire Phone. And, and people mm. ask me, oh, oh, they have other products like Kindle and Echo and stuff. Those are all service enabled products, right? The Echo is just a set of microphones and speakers. The entire magic and everything that makes that a product is all in the cloud. It's all services. It's all iterative, right? And you, you can look at the HomePod as a counter example. Mm. The, the hardware is all better. It's very Apple-like, but it's an inferior product because what actually matters is the sort of service component, right? That is a cert that like that that it's a physical manifestation of a service. Whereas a phone, yes, the services matter hugely. Like you try using your phone with no internet connection, it's not very, it's not very useful. Mm. But because it's something you hold in your hand, you interact with, and you touch, and and it's you display, and it's with you all the time. The 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 parts of the sort of physical product matter much, you know, just as much in or a higher priority than the other stuff. Given that the other stuff's mostly equal, mostly dare I say good enough you you that comes to the forefront and i think i've said this before the the fire phone is i'm not lying is the worst phone i've ever used in my life like it was it was it was atrocious it like i've used cheap hundred dollar android phones that were better to use in the fire phone like that's how that's how bad it was and why because if am if apple is sort of so good at product and so good at this sort of like delivering this finished jewel Every year, and their entire organization is geared around that and, and making that a, a thing. And, and if my contention is that's what makes that organization sort of fundamentally unsuited to delivering iterative, you know, self improving mm. feedback loop services, well, you have the ex- Amazon is the exact opposite extreme. They are so good at building these modular services with, 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 with you know, defined interfaces and everything 
plugs in together. And they're so good at it that they can not just build it internally, but they can expose it to the entire world and build massive, massive business on top of that. It follows that sort of company is going to be atrocious at building like jewel-like products that you carry in your pocket. I think the parallel I'd like to draw here is actually in the same way that I needed to make the mistake around the way that I thought about the PC and the the lessons that could be drawn from it. It's I, It almost gives me a little bit of heart that Bezos made the same mistake with the Fire Phone because I think that that was such a flop that that lesson is now reinforced and going through the process of learning these lessons and remembering to keep things in alignment and understanding based on the strategy and the way you've built the organization and what it's good at is a is a core determinant of where it is that you're going to add value for customers and in the same way now you look at you you look at apple's satisfaction with siri and it's clearly the thing that lags the most it's something in the order of 20 percent of everything people love about the iphone or whatever it's 90 percent satisfaction 95 and then there's siri down at 20 percent and i think they need to learn the lesson that they Yes, their organizational structure and their approach to solving problems have been phenomenal for a certain type of problem, but this is a different type of problem, and therefore the approach that you need to take is diff- it needs to be different as well. It's it's such a great point, and, and you know there is so much to admire about Bezos as a CEO, and and, and you know what's interesting about Amazon is Amazon people think of it as a sort of straight shot, but you know they really pivoted around two thousand five, two thousand six, two thousand seven to being much more of a platform company. Like they were just a retailer before, but that mm. it was all mm. within the span of a few years that they they launched the Merchant Program, which is now more than fifty percent of sales, and, and is the, the 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 that is the transformation of Amazon from being a retailer to being mm-hmm. a retailing platform. They launched AWS, uh, and there's one other thing they. Uh, I can't remember what the other one was, but but they really shifted what they were as a company, and that's very admirable, right? But the other great thing about Bezos is, to your point, there was no Fire Phone two. You know what I mean? Mm. Like he got burned, and it, it, it happens. It was it was certainly born of hubris. Like I, I wrote about it. <laughs> yeah. We had a podcast about the, like the keynote for the Fire Phone was bizarre. It was Bezos just going on and on about how amazing this was for like ninety minutes, and you know the sort of like tell all stories that came out later. Like this was a Bezos production. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And he utterly and completely failed. And and two things: one, he didn't try it again, and two that didn't deter him from doing like the echo six months later. You know what I mean? Mm. So, and, and so that was so impressive and and not to talk about Facebook again, but, but what I've written this in the Mm. daily update a few times recently, Mm. I am the number one worry I have Mm. for Facebook from a strategic perspective is Mark Zuckerberg clearly still harbors platform dreams. We just spent a podcast a few weeks ago talking about why Facebook attempting to be a platform instead of embracing Mm. their identity as sort of an information service that shows ads is the reason they got in this entire mess in the first place. And he's still out there on earnings calls talking about being a platform someday. It's it's the exact opposite reaction that, that Bezos had to the Fire Phone. That is so interesting. I the the mistake thing and learning from the mistakes is just a critical component. And and I think all of these guys, when they get to the position that they are, start to believe that they can bend reality to their will. And in certain circumstances, they absolutely can. 
Bezos has a demonstrated ability to have learned from mistakes, that connection right then to Zuckerberg, where he will butt his head up against the wall numerous times. And as we talked about, the 15-year apology tour is basically as a result, if you drive down to its root cause, that's a lot of where it comes from. And uh, they're, they're still at it again, aren't they? Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, on the earnings call, uh, Zuckerberg was was still talking about, about the platform. And on the F8 conference, he, w- he was complaining about how a- phones are centered on apps and what's be better was centered on people. <laughs> like <laughs> Facebook Home was an utter and complete flop, mm. not just because of the distribution issues, but because it was a terrible idea. Like no one actually wants to use their phone that way. And, and yeah, I mean, it, it's like of all the things we can say about Facebook, the fact that I – I see no evidence that Zuckerberg actually learned the lesson of this, presuming that, you know, we're giving ourselves a lot of credit that we identified the issue. But I I think it's exactly right. If if Facebook had acted like an advertising company back in 2009, 2010, you know, when all these issues were going on, they would not be in this mess in the Mm. first place. And there's zero evidence that that has actually broken through to to, to Mark Zuckerberg. Anyhow, to go back, we've Mm, uh, Amazon. Yeah, no Facebook. Well, to go back to Apple, I think the, (laughs) the, the other thing that's interesting is We've talked a ton about Apple's blind spot about this stuff and and, and that they, they're not changing. They're not going to do anything different. And, you know, and the big problem, and this is the you've talked about this, the curse of success is mm. all the sort of profits and all the numbers look so good. Right. Siri is the most used voice assistant in the world. But is that is it the most used voices in the world because it's a good service or because it's pre-installed on 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 all, every single iPhone? Right. And and you see the same thing with like Apple's the the the, the app store situation. Right. Apple's making billions and billions and billions of dollars. And, and they're the whole services narrative when the reality is all this money is coming from like all these games that are tricking people to spending more and more money. And, and Apple's will brag about it up and down the street. Is that building a sustainable platform advantage? No. I mean, I think that ship has sailed. But I do think there was a period where Apple could have really enabled an incredible array of apps that could have only been built on iOS and they just weren't because Apple was blinded by the numbers. And, you know, in the case of Siri, the I, I guess the big hope is that HomePod will be such a flop that the company like, oh, wait, why is it a flop? I thought Siri was awesome. And we'll finally sort of break through that something's mm. not right here. And I think we mentioned in the podcast a week ago the fact that they did hire somebody. And more importantly, that somebody is not buried under another part of the organization that's focused on the iPhone, but is reporting directly to Tim Cook. I mean, again, we'll see how it actually plays out, but at least it's a small intangible step to something's wrong here. And it's wrong in a very fundamental sort of organizational structure sort of way. We need to do it differently. This is where, this is where I started to try and tease apart in my mind the distinction between the new market and the low end disruption and the user experience, because you see Apple's profits going up dramatically you see all the numbers looking fantastic but they are so exposed in this one area and this one area you could easily see as we've talked about like you think about what the the next frontier of computing is going to look like if it's not a phone what's it going to be and there's a reasonable chance that voice control will be a big part of it an intelligent assistant and this is where they're making so much more money on all these devices and it's there's uh, that they're, they're doing this specific error of voice not particularly well it 
it has the feeling to me like this is the same thing where you create an environment where new market disruption can come along because the numbers are all going up, but there's, and people are buying because in general the experience is pretty good, but there's a source of discontent and it's getting more and more expensive as the ASPs all drive up and we're selling more services to people and we're getting them to buy more products and whatever. But there's A, it's getting more expensive and there's an area where they're exposed and that's how new market disruption happens yeah i mean i think that that's a that it maybe it was just the phrasing you use that mm. the incumbent is causal towards new market disruption i think it's more they're a victim of it and they're blind to it and oblivious to it because mm. of the business model stuff that comes before so i i, I guess we're probably saying the same thing but the, you know i think the the real the danger for apple in this sort of user experience idea is what we we've podcasted about it a ton it's that to the degree they lock into services as a revenue stream and making that critical and not allowing you to, say, use Google services uh, mm. or as a default, for example, the more they're endangering that experience mm-hmm. and making it possible that the totality of the user experience stops increasing it. And because, yeah, parts of it are getting better and better and the processes are faster and faster and the security is great and all those sorts of things. But other parts that may increasingly matter are not improving and the totality of the the user experience in an alternative platform could you know could could exceed it and, and I, I don't know that's sort of like a different thing though than low end disruption right i mean there's obviously mm-hmm. so new market disruption is always a threat the, the idea that phones no longer become important or become less important over time mm-hmm. like that that's mm-hmm. that, that like what happened to the pc that is always mm, a, exactly. a threat right but there's another th- the other threat here is it's not low end disruption it's that when you consider the totality of the user experience other things like just what matters for the user experience changes. This is embedded in the idea that user expectations for the user experience are ever changing. It doesn't follow by definition that the company winning early on then will win the long run. Like maybe people want want faster and faster phones and a better and better user interface. To the extent that's true, Apple's in great shape. But to the extent people want a voice assistant that is actually really good, their user experience slope is still going up, but the capability of, say, Apple to fulfill that is perhaps more more in question. And, and so that's not a low-end disruption. It's just that the Apple wasn't able to keep up, as it were. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it's incumbent on them to figure out ways of continuing to uh, understand what the users want in terms of the jobs they have done and to understand the tech that's out there and to use the tech to continue to produce wows that are related to those jobs and they should play to their strengths. They, I mean, if, if, like you say, the voice assistant is something that's really important. They need to get their house in order in, in a way that lets them deliver on that. And like you said, the hiring and so on, that gives, that gives one hope. I mean, the other option is play to their strengths and understand where the existing organization is incredibly well positioned to keep driving forward what users expect and what's considered normal. And the way that they're playing in the augmented reality space, for example, and the fact that there's integration between hardware and software Software and they can actually change the hardware inside the phone in order to deliver a better augmented reality experience. That's a great example of them, the divine discontent, like you say, like let's create, if games are a big earner, let's create a mechanism for games unlike anything else. And there are obviously a whole lot of other use cases, but that's an example where, okay, if they're, they're not going to win here, this might be a necessary thing that they have to figure out the voice stuff. So maybe you should spend the time to sort that out. But in the meantime, don't 
standstill, figure out what else people haven't imagined and what else Apple is uniquely positioned to be able to deliver. And that's a good example of of one area where they're doing that. And the other thing to note is that integration isn't inherently good. Like to your point before, like there's no one way, right way to do things. Mm. I mean, the, the iPhone's biggest you know, a huge moat in the early days was the App Store, which again is a modular is modular, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the entire concept is modular, and, and and to that point, I mean, you get yourself in trouble when you seek to integrate into things you're not good at because you're you're limiting the consumer. And we've made this point before, like if Apple lets you ch- change the defaults so that you could use Google Assistant, like the iPhone would be unassailable for for how much. Would you add to the lifespan? I mean, a, a huge amount because, you know, whenever we talk about what's coming in the future, it's not like the old stuff goes away, right? It's, it's not like now that we use phones, PCs are completely gone. Now, are they in decline or do people hold on to them longer? Uh, for sure. Of course they do. But it's not like we're going to suddenly stop using phones. We're going to be using phones for a very, 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 very long time. And, and again, mm. I'm not saying Apple should do that, but I think it is a good example where it, we sort of have a long debate about it, but it, it's a very good example of where uh, having a modular solution could actually have a better user experience because you're allowing sort of the market to do something that you're not good at. You're commoditizing the compliments, as it were. And and Apple, you know, good move to integrate down to the processor, good move to integrate up into voice assistance, I think is very much an open question. Yeah, I, it's one of those things where a uh, good move from the perspective of, yes, this is going to become a critical function of the phone, or you could see a world in which that happens. Are they well suited to doing it? Mm, I mean, I think this, there's a standing question there. And like you said, we could have a very big debate on the merits of letting Google into something that is effectively core functionality. And we, we hearken back to the, what happened with maps and their concern that they, they are existentially threatened by their dependence on one provider who decides to deprioritize focus on iOS or use the fact that this is a core function that people rely on for their phones and to hold Apple hostage because uh, Apple has to rely on that provider in in order to create the experience. And you you have to balance that against, well, the fact is they are better and maybe therefore you should step back and let somebody else do it. Yeah, no, I'm not saying, yeah, we, again, that's a whole nother podcast. And I think both uh-huh. of us could debate both sides of the question. Uh-huh. The, the point is is simply the, the more sort of big picture integration is not fundamentally the right strategy. Yes. A lot of times modularity is, is, is the right strategy as it was for Android, frankly, like a- Android was cr- totally correct to modularize the sort of operating system and hardware and all sorts of things. It, it, it made sense for Google, which is a services company. Why would they even want to get in that space? And, and you could use that as a criticism of, you know, of whether Pixel phones make sense or not, or, or Microsoft Surface for all those, you know, same, same sort of reasons. But, but I, I did want to spend a little bit of time uh, in the last part here on Amazon specifically. And, and what I think makes Amazon so compelling in this discussion is it kind of goes back to my point about General Motors versus Mercedes, where mm. in some respects, General Motors is better positioned for a future where cars are pure commodities because their cars kind of already are pure commodities mm. in a way that, say, a Mercedes isn't. And Amazon's sort of relentless focus on being on low margins and being in low margin businesses and making it up, uh, quite literally making it up in volume is – it, it, it combined with this sort of focus on the consumer experience is a really, really sort of powerful combination because you, you're 
and and the sort of divisional structure where Amazon is this whole, basically Amazon is this whole host of teams of, of independent businesses under one roof. And if one team is profitable, they take that profits and they use it to start up another team, another business that's that's doing something else. And and it, you know Amazon is in some respects a holding company, but not really because they're all running on a common platform. They all have all the shared sort of stuff, but all on a standardized interface. Like this this idea of this of this company being of this nature. If the if the focus if the guiding light the northern light is is this sort of consumer experience and doing what's right for the consumer and you have this built in structure that sort of can just extend far more than any other company we've sort of seen like for when it comes to the long run you can see how this is incredibly compelling you know I mean Apple at the end of the day the the iPhone is only going to grow so far and. And, mm-hmm. you know, the services that drive the sort of Apple growth story these days are, you could argue, some of them work against the user experience. Like, is paying for iCloud storage great for the user experience? Well, it's great for the stock, but but you're starting to get a little bit of attention here in a way you're not getting from Amazon by virtue of being so focused on sort of low-margin volume-based plays. I, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. It's... The extent to which the company has grown and the extent to which since the pivot and since, uh, again, it's probably the intellectual journey for me that I've gone on with you of understanding this notion of them being the first best customer, keeping uh, the other organization at bay, not having the meetings, but rather everything goes across a standardized interface, using Amazon to generate scale and then releasing that to the world and uh, then just doing it again and again and again. And if they need this service, chances are someone else will need this service and so on. The model is fantastic, I guess. And, and I mean, I can see it. I can see it spreading into all kinds of areas. But I guess the same thing applies. And I want to be certain, be sure that I don't fall into the same trap that I, that perhaps Bulma did or, uh, or in terms of my thinking around the, there's a one best organizational structure. It's devastatingly effective, no doubt. Does that mean it's the approach that everybody should take? I mean, keep it in mind, keep what they've done in mind, but don't fall into the trap of assuming that this is the, the, the one right way. I guess that's the only counter I have. And it's not to take away from any of what you just said, because it is clear they're devastatingly effective and your, your lead to the article this week of Apple versus Amazon and perhaps the other companies who's going to be first to a trillion dollars. Well, it might be, it's probably going to be Apple, but maybe it's Amazon, but it really does feel like Amazon's going to be the first one to $2 trillion. That's a testament to exactly what you were just describing then. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, the real takeaway is you don't want to have the same model as Amazon. Like, like I mean, Apple, Amazon mm. doesn't threaten Apple in any sort of meaningful, meaningful way. I mean, yes, in the home, Alexa competes with the HomePod, but but Amazon is not threatening the idea of selling a high end, you know, mm. hardware product that you, that you like to use. And and I think Apple's gotten themselves in trouble with this before. I mean, like Google's Google's not a competitor for for Apple, and Google frankly got themselves in trouble by thinking Apple was a competitor for them. Now, is it a strategic consideration to your point about Google holding Apple hostage about maps and wanting to include ads and control it? You, certainly, it, it, you know, should Google worry about Apple? constricting access to their services absolutely but there's a difference between that them being a strategic concern that matters for how you reach customers versus being a competitor in in the way you think about it should be different 
I totally agree. It's interesting you think about these companies, Apple being vertical and Amazon and Google being horizontal. And as soon as that enters the equation, the likelihood of competition, overall competition, like existential threat competition actually tends to decrease pretty dramatically. But what happens is there are these skirmishes at the intersections, whether it's Google wanting to get the voice assistant out and recognizing that Apple is the means of delivery to the customer, or Apple realizing that maps are so critical and not wanting to be held hostage to Google. And it's almost as if these companies overreact to the skirmishes at the intersection and then try and play outside of their lane and that's when they start to get into trouble yeah i mean it's easy to sit here on a podcast and tell them what they should or should not do with these with these sort of major <laughs> sort of initiatives and i'm you know i'm very i'm very cognizant of that but i, I think the app that's why the apple amazon is probably a better one because i mean if you think about it the, like apple is the antidote to amazon not that it defeats Amazon, but it makes you impervious to Amazon, right? Everyone's scared of Amazon. Well, here's an idea. Don't be a sort of – don't try to mm. compete in the same way that Amazon competes. You compete you – know, I would say the same thing for extra checkery relative to, to Google or Facebook, wherever it might be. And it, it, like you compete by – building a direct relationship with customers. That's what gets you around these sort of massive platforms. And obviously, you know, it's easy for me to say I'm a one-person small company, but you see to the extent that media is succeeding or companies are succeeding, it's by going direct to customers with a differentiated product. Mm. In a way, you know, Amazon's going to never really win on on differentiation and high margins. It, like, if anything, they're going to be an aid to companies with differentiation and high margins because they're going to be an easier way to access and reach customers. Yeah, it's you're not going to out Amazon Apple, uh, Amazon, and you're not going to out Apple Apple. And once you recognize that, it leaves you free to be yourself and figure out the best way for you to do things. Right, exactly. And, and you think about Amazon, like who does Amazon really threaten in retail? Like they, they, beyond other retailers, like they threaten like the CPG companies, right? That are all mass market and, and, and the the lowest, you know, lowest denominator and and that could extend into other products. Uh-huh. Like they launched the, the, the dog food this week, right? Uh, but but if you're, they're not going to threaten these sort of like the, the, the brand and status associated and, and fiercely loyal customer sort of brands. Like they're not going to suddenly say, oh, I'm going to just I just bought this other one on Amazon. No, like, like you actually care about this stuff, right? It's stuff you don't care about that that's the that's the bigger problem. Yeah, totally. Anyhow, 150 a a good sort of uh yes, a nice round number uh of which we humans care about and they don't actually mean anything, but that's because we're <laughs> humans and we care about stuff like that. We care about stories and we 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 buy things because they're fancy and and they have no additional utility and that's and that's okay. It like that's that, that that's who we are. And you I think Bezos made this point about coming up from hunter gatherers, but but it's such a profound point that this idea that you know so much of everything, literally our jobs and what we do, is all entirely in our heads. It's all made up, right? And that doesn't make it any less real. I think it makes it very real, and I think the sooner you recognize that, I mean, the the more you're able to work with it. And you know, the other point, and I, I made this in in a daily update, but. Th- there is a very sort of inherent optimism in in this view from 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 Bezos because if the robots come along and take all our jobs, we're it's not like we're all going to suddenly be happy and and going to be like up and we're just floating around in our chairs watching TV. I mean, I mean, we are magnificent at creating problems and needs and drama that needs to be solved and we will pay to get it solved and that payment will lead to jobs to solve those problems and and that's not. 
it's not it's long term optimistic. Now there's going to be a, all kinds of a people as we talked about in the short term. The transition is going to be brutal. It's been brutal throughout human history. Mm-hmm. The transition from from you know hunter gatherers to agriculture, from agriculture to the industrial revolution, industrial revolution to to what we're going through today. And I mean, and all this sort of smaller scale changes in the middle. It, like it's ugly. It's really ugly. And and there's reason to be. I think strong reason to be short to medium term pessimistic, but long term, if if we can step back for just a moment, you know, we will in all likelihood figure it out. Yeah, I mean, here's to hoping again, and it's all this stuff is what uh, you're right. Like the problems and the dramas or whatever is uh, people want to. They have the same jobs that need to be to be done time immemorial and whether it's uh, whether it's getting something to another country or going to experience something else or or learning something like this wouldn't have been a mechanism for people to learn once upon a time that have had to have gone to school and now we're reaching people around the world doing it and we've got 150 episodes under our belt there's i agree with you yes there's short to medium term cause for concern but there are also there's the good side to it as well yeah, and it, I think it, both sides err by focusing on just the short-term mm. pain and also the long-term benefit. Because the the, the truth is, it's like focusing too much on the micro versus the macro. Like both both matter. And mm-hmm. uh, anyhow, but it, it, you know, maybe we've spent a lot of time, probably last few episodes, focusing on a lot of micro problems. So it, it's still useful, I think, to back up and and remind ourselves about the macro, the the some macro optimism, as it were. Yeah, agreed. Anyhow, go to wordpress.com slash exponent to get 15% off your website today. That's wordpress.com slash exponent. Our thanks to them for sponsoring the episode as they do every week. And I will talk to you next week. Yes, and my thanks to you for not quizzing me this week. (laughs) I'm just going to have a double quiz next week. (laughs) <laughs> oh god now i'll have to go back and study it yeah that sounds good i know and i am not giving you the script you have to listen uh, there we go have a good one mate i'll talk to you then all right bye-bye